If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He puts in his mouth this saying that in peace, sons bury their fathers. That is the normal, natural order of events. But in war, fathers bury their sons. That was Paul Cartledge on the works of the historian Herodotus. The British Empire that we criticise or defend is, is not what we think it is. It's, it's, it isn't this kind of massive, huge, effective system of government. It's much more chaotic. And that was John Wilson talking about India and the British Empire. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our second podcast of April 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This year, we're marking the 2,500th anniversary of the birth of Herodotus a Greek writer who wrote a narrative of the Greco-Persian Wars and is widely known as the father of history. To find out more about his life and work, I spoke to Professor Paul Cartledge, an ancient historian based at the University of Cambridge. And I began by asking him to give us an idea of the world Herodotus was born into in the early 5th century BC. Herodotus was born in Halicarnassus, which is today's Bodrum, and we're not absolutely sure the exact year, but the one that's most frequently cited would work out in our way of reckoning time as 484 BC or BCE. So he was born in the Persian Empire, the world's greatest empire that had yet come into being, based of course in Iran, but spreading out as far east as Pakistan today, as far west as the Aegean, and Bodrum is down in southwest Turkey on the Aegean coast. And he interestingly has a father with a name which doesn't sound Greek, so it's possibly that he's of a mixed marriage or that he's um, very closely connected to non-Greeks, the people who lived round where this Greek city was 
planted are called carrions, and they actually pitch up in Homer. And Herodotus is, in a sense, or he was referred to as the prose Homer. So he's got a long literary tradition. Homer is in his DNA, as it were, his cultural DNA. But the Persian Empire is rather an alien phenomenon. They have different gods, different political system, incredibly powerful, and Greeks like Herodotus have to pay taxes to the Persian Empire. So they're not in the absolute best position in the entire world. And how much do we know of Herodotus's life before his writings? We know virtually nothing because the ancients at that time were not interested much in biography and they weren't interested in the biography of writers. The first biographies tend to be about people who are, if you like, movers and shakers, so politicians, um, generals, kings, that sort of thing. And Herodotus was none of those. In fact, one of the very interesting things about him is if you compare and contrast his historiography with chronicles written in other countries, cultures before him, let's say the Jews or the Babylonians, what they produce is official records, what the ruling class, normally a king, wants to hear, wants to be told, wants his people to hear. Herodotus is just an ordinary Joe, as it were. He's an unofficial uh, historian. So, in his work, we can glean various things, and that's really what the ancient sources themselves who write about him had to do. So, if I tell you that our longest single entry on him in any ancient source is a 10th century AD lexicon in Greek, it's called the Suda, um, that will tell you, I think, quite a lot about how little we know about him personally. You mentioned that Herodotus was, like you say, just an ordinary Joe. He wasn't like these court writers of the past. So what, what motivated him to become a historian? And why did he choose to write about the Greco-Persian Wars? The second question is easier to answer. Why did he write about what was in his lifetime, though he was only about four when it really um, hit home, the greatest event that affected the entire East Greek world, that is the Mediterranean Greek world, the Aegean Greek world, namely the invasion by Xerxes, Emperor of Persia, the largest uh, amphibious uh, invasion before the D-Day landings. I mean, it's that huge. So there's no question he's born in the Persian Empire. He's not thrilled about the Persian mode of governance, autocratic monarchy. He's in favor of liberation. He likes the fact that his fellow Greeks actually defeated that Persian invasion. But where was he, Herodotus, as it were? Well, he kicks off in his very first sentence, his preface, he uses the word historia, historia. And that is, of course, the origin of our history, goes back to him. Well, what he's trying to do is inquire into. Historia means inquiry or research, not history as such. History is the result of research. Why did that great empire come into being? Why did it affect Greeks like himself? And why, above all, did they lose? And that, to him, was the most extraordinary thing. But he does have an intellectual ancestry. The word historia, he didn't invent it. It 
it probably goes back to somebody called Thales, who is sometimes referred to as the first scientist. Thales wanted to know about the world, the cosmos, the non-human universe. What's it made of? How did it come to be? Herodotus transfers that interest into human history. How did this culture come to be? Why did it perform the way it did? How come the clash of cultures and civilizations in the 490s and 480s BC? Who do we think would have been Herodotus's readers at the time? You use the word readers, and in a sense, there were readers because there had to be a text, otherwise the thing couldn't have been preserved. But it's absolutely enormous. It is the longest single Greek work of prose that survives from antiquity. It's one work. It was his life's work. He probably took a long time compiling it. And we are told, this is one of those few biographical bits of information that we do have, that he gave lectures, uh, for example, at Olympia, which was a place where the largest number of Greeks would gather together at any one time, about 40,000 every four years. So you've got a built-in audience. And of course, if he's talking about what's happening in a particular city or affecting a particular city, then he might well give a little lecture in that city. And we are told, this is another of these snippets, that um, the city of Athens so liked his um, angle on the Persian Wars that they gave him a massive sum of money now, whether that's actually literally true or not, he certainly does write a lot about Athens, and what he says about Athens is flattering. So it's not inconceivable that uh, he did get some sort of public award. Something that we think about a lot nowadays with historians is things like bias and perspective. So to what extent was Herodotus dispassionate, or did he have some kind of agenda? And, and I suppose also, how easy was it for him to be dispassionate when he was living under Persian rule? It's an exceptionally good set of questions, and... Um people have often asked whether or not simply because he was Greek, does that mean that he's by definition anti-Persian? Well, the answer is he wasn't because he respected other cultures. I don't mean just the Persians, but any non-Greek culture that the Greeks interacted with or had some contact with, and they were surrounded of course by what they call barbarians, meaning non-Greeks, because their language was unintelligible, bar, bar, bar stuff. Herodotus seems to be un- unusual in the degree of respect he shows for all barbarians. So that possible source of bias doesn't exist. Secondly, he's not unafraid to be critical of Greeks. So in other words, the Greek resistance to the Persians, it's not presented as uniformly absolutely wonderful and Persians are bad, Greeks are are good. In the way, do you remember the movie 300, the Persians at Thermopylae? Well, this is part of Herodotus' story. It's actually in book six. But unlike the makers of the movie 300, the Persians are are quite respectable with exceptions. And it's, as it were, a fair fight. They're not monsters. But nevertheless, Herodotus on balance, because he's a Greek, he actually at one point says that all human beings tend to think that their society, their cultures, morals, their way of life is superior to those of everybody else. So he's aware of the tendency to be ethnocentric, but he tries very hard to resist it. And then as far as the Greeks are concerned, the issue really was which Greek city was most responsible for defeating the Persians. Had they not behaved the way they did, the Persians might have won. And secondly, were there any Greek cities that actually took the wrong side? 
Uh, in other words, sided with the Persians. Well, here he got himself into a bit of trouble, though most of us think he was probably right in some ways. He singles out the city of Thebes for being traitors to the Greek cause because they went over to the Persians. They did not resist the Persians. They actually fought with them. And secondly, as between the Athenians and the Spartans, the two major cities that were responsible for the Greek resistance, the alliance, a very small alliance, actually, uh, he gives the palm, he awards the victory to Athens because mainly of its um, key role on the sea. He believes that had the Greeks lost at sea, then Xerxes would have been able able to, as it were, wrap up the Greeks, and what happened on land would be secondary. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. Yes, I was actually interested to know, nowadays, historians have done lots of different research on the Greco-Persian Wars. From our modern historical perspective, how accurate is the Herodotus version? The problem we have in terms of determining its accuracy is that we don't have an alternative that's um, in any way comparable. That's to say, later Greeks did indeed rewrite Herodotus. But how could they do it any better? Herodotus was old enough to be able to talk to actual survivors, eyewitness participants, participants, he could actually compare and contrast different people's points of view. And he very quickly discovered, of course, that people have selective memories. They remember what they want to, or they simply misremember in good faith. So there is a later account. It's a first century BC Greek. He actually was from Sicily, he's a Sicilian Greek. So they didn't play a major part in the Persian Wars. You might think, therefore, they would be more objective about the whole thing. But um, he's called Diodorus. He wrote wrote a massive narrative, chronologically ordered history, starting in what we call the 12th century BC. And then, so therefore, the Persian Wars have a part, but they're not the only part. And what he seems to have done is follow an earlier source, later than Herodotus, who differed from Herodotus in various ways, uh, exaggerating certain incidents, suppressing others. But there's no real reason why we um, can objectively say, well, certainly he got that wrong, Herodotus did, and we therefore should prefer another source or just reject all the sources we have. That, that's the situation we're in. So in that case, are modern scholars still relying quite a lot on Herodotus for our understanding of these wars? Well, I believe they are. Um, Archaeology can confirm to some extent the, the nature of the culture, the amount of money spent on different buildings and that sort of thing, the material culture of the time. But it can't, of its very nature, um, correct Herodotus. I'll give you just one illustration of where it can confirm. One of the cities that the Persians destroyed in 490 BC, actually, 10 years before the major invasion of 480 BC, was Eretria on the island of Euboea, modern Evia. And so recent excavations by Swiss and Greek archaeologists have found severely burnt layers. It's like if you're uh, excavating Rome in the early 4th century BC, you find burnt layer, that's the Gallic sack of Rome. If you um, excavate the city of London, and you're trying to get back to the 1666, the fire, you find terrific evidence of uh, fire damage. So that, as it were, confirms, yes, the Persians did indeed destroy Eretria when uh, Herodotus says they did. But beyond that, we are reliant on the internal consistency, the plausibility, inherent intrinsic plausibility, and the general um, belief that Herodotus really did what he said he did, which is to go 
go around asking people for their views, comparing, contrasting, and presenting what he took to be the most reasonable, rational explanation of what he thinks really did happen. And aside from these interviews that Herodotus did with people who may have remembered the events, what other kind of research methods did he have? There were some records. Um, For example, you go to Egypt and the Egyptians were very keen on preserving records in writing going back centuries. But he didn't know Egyptian and it seems he didn't actually speak any other language than Greek. So he's reliant, as you or I would be, on interpreters. And you choose uh, either a Greek-speaking Egyptian or an Egyptian-speaking Greek who you think will be reliable. And you hope that the priests tell you the truth as it were, about um, their ancestors, their, um, the preceding priests, or about the royal deeds of different kings and so on. So, one can, to some extent, I'll give you just one illustration, there is a series of records about the Apis bull that the Egyptian priests of that cult of Apis preserved, and it tells you about the age of particular bulls at different times and when they were slaughtered and so on. Now, there is one, this is one actual Uh, instance that counts against Herodotus. He believed that a Persian king who invaded Egypt, conquered Egypt, in fact, for the uh, Persian Empire, was so deranged, so hostile to non-Persian customs, including religious customs, and even such an important one as the Apis bull cult, that he actually ordered the slaughter of an Apis bull. Well, we look at the records for that that particular time in the 520s, and there isn't actually a record of that. So, what Herodotus seems to have been guilty of or a victim of is a smear campaign, a negative representation by his Persian-speaking Greeks or his Greek-speaking Persians against that particular king. One of the reasons being to contrast that king with other kings who were better or to compare them with kings who were as bad. So, there is an element there of, um, well, what should we call it um, imagination. And I suppose in, in ancient times, there certainly was a tendency to hyperbole in terms of like, numbers and that kind of thing. And also myth, reality would often be intermingled. So how good was Herodotus actually disentangling these kind of things? That's a very good question. The, in terms of vocabulary, he uses the word myth just twice. And in both cases, in a negative sense. In other words, he distinguishes between myth, that's not true, and fact, which can be, uh, in his own terms, verified. So, he has the principle of distinction between those two. You mentioned the exaggeration of numbers, absolutely. He seems to have believed that as many as five million people were involved on the Persian side in the invasion for a and then 479 BC. Modern scholars tend to reduce that absolutely hugely down to, well, some people think as many as half a million, even that would have been stretching things. But most of us think probably it was nearer 200,000. He seems to have exaggerated likewise the number of ships that the Persians could command on the sea. So, yes, you're completely right that there is an element of exaggeration. And one asks, was that simply because they weren't very good, the Greeks, at dealing with 
with very large numbers. And that is a possible explanation because the Greek for countless, um, you know, innumerable, is the same as the Greek for 10,000. So beyond 10,000, they seem to have had a problem with coping with it in, in intellectual terms. The other reason would be, of course, to make the Greeks, the, the poor, pathetic little Greek resistors, their achievement that much more extraordinary in terms of the scale of difference between the two sides in terms of numbers. So, yes, uh, Herodotus is guilty, we're, we're quite confident, of those two kinds of um, factual errors. What kind of a writer was Herodotus? As well as being accurately recording the events that happened, did he also attempt to impart some kind of literary flair in his work? He did indeed, and in fact that's why, it, to us it's odd, but the only historians, or indeed any writers of any kind who survive, who were copied, who were read or listened to or performed, or were those that different judges at different times, literary experts, decided were the best of their genre of writing. So for early historiography, Herodotus and Thucydides are taken to be the exemplars. Their style, very different indeed. Their dialect, very different. Herodotus wrote in Ionic, which is an East Greek dialect, based on Homer, and he actually got the label the most Homeric, because he was the one who exemplified that sort of narrative excitement, the ability to tell a tale over a very long stretch, indeed many tales within uh, the one compass of um, the Greco-Persian wars. That's the overarching theme. And as I said before, he did indeed um, deliver orally his text. So that has to catch the attention, first of all, of the audience, and then secondly, to keep it. And he did have a great reputation as uh, a narrative uh, exponent. And whereas, just to compare him with Thucydides, who wrote in Athenian Greek, Attic Greek, and he wrote in a very crabbed academic style, not one that's good for reading out loud and hearing orally, but needs to be read properly to be understood. Herodotus wrote in a limpid sort of string along, it's called paratactic, so one thing after another, not very, what should we say, convoluted or uh, involuted uh, way, very easy to grasp at a first hearing, which was crucial. Herodotus is known as the first historian, but I mean, there had been literate cultures for several, even thousands of years before then. Why did it take this long for a historian to emerge? Well, I would say, going back to that very word historia, and the fact that um, here we have an intellectual, one of the great innovating geniuses indeed of the 5th century BC, such as Aeschylus, such as uh, Hippocrates, and so on. This is a fantastic century of uh, ancient Greek culture. It's sort of like Florence in the 14th, 15th century. He was so um, sharp in applying his method of inquiry, that's historia, that he was able to cut through mere propaganda. We've already distinguished between myth, which is telling stories, just mere legends without any basis. He contrasted that with accurate matter of fact. His ideal was always certainty. Uh, he uses the word meaning certainty as the goal, the best he can achieve. Given that, he's asking about, he's inquiring into events that happened 
either when he was a very little boy or before uh, he was indeed born. He applies his historia with a view to explanation. And this, I think, is the ultimate distinction between him and any previous writer about the past. They had been typically official um, we might call them recorders, remembrances, uttering what you and I rather cruelly might call propaganda. He is an unofficial historian. He's the denial, if you like, of previous official history. And he, yes, he has a point of view, but it's not any power broker's point of view. He's not the spokesman of a priesthood or a monarchy. He is an unofficial historian, as I've called him, an ordinary Joe. Of course, he was exceptional intellectually. Of course, he was above averagely wealthy to be educated enough to be able to understand the earlier literature, to be able to go on his travels, etc., etc. So, he's not normal, but he's not official, and I think that's absolutely crucial. He's trying to explain in the past, partly for its own sake, just why did something happen, but also with the view, somewhat didactic, um, this is what happened then, beware of this, and emulate that. Yes, I was actually going to ask you about that. Did he try to draw any specific lessons from the Greco-Persian Wars? His lessons were, I would, this is terrific generalization, but twofold. One is about uh, ethnography, comparative anthropology. He has a claim, actually, to being the father of comparative anthropology. Do not think that just because you are Greek, or let's say Athenian Greek or Spartan Greek, that you are by definition superior to everybody else, all non-Greeks or all all non-Spartans or non-Athenians. Every human culture has its own way of life, its own mores, its own customs, which it thinks is the best, not just for itself, but for everybody. So, in other words, typically, he's very acute about this. He's asking people to examine themselves, to think twice about their assumptions, their cultural, absolutely sort of second nature behavior, what they assume to be universally the best. I'll give you one example, monogamy. Many cultures, he points out, are not monogamous. You are, that is the Greek way, but don't think that every other way of pairing relationships sexually or for reproductive purposes is by definition worse than your own. Herodotus is often known as the father of history. Would you also go so far as say he's the most important historian? Is he the most important historian that has existed? Wow, I wouldn't like to say that I've read absolutely every historian that's ever written, but um, I think in terms of his um, originating power, that he is one that no historian can afford not to read. That's a different thing. You might well decide that you actually prefer, let's say, a Thucydidean, narrow, intense, burning focus on politics and war in the sense of war as politics by other means. Herodotus, of course, does that. I mean, half his history is about war. He's very alert to politics as a distinctive cultural phenomenon. So, the Greeks do politics differently from Persians, for example. But that it's not his primary interest, whereas it is Thucydides' primary interest. Why do human beings in political societies make the sorts of decisions that they do? And Thucydides believed that from studying just one, admittedly a major war, 
so-called Peloponnesian War, you could draw lessons of universal validity. So study that Peloponnesian War and you will learn the sorts of things that are always going to happen as long as human beings live in political societies, more or less. History doesn't repeat itself, but history does have certain constants. Now, Herodotus didn't rise to, or if you like, bore down into that sort of level of discourse. I would just um, add one, I think it's um, something I'm very fond of Herodotus for saying. He's not himself, though he's a historian of war, uh, keen on war. And he uses a parable to make this point, and he puts it into the mouth, interestingly, not of a Greek, but of a non-Greek, a Philhellene Greek, the king of Lydia, called Croesus, and you've probably heard the expression rich as Croesus, seriously rich. Anyway, he was conquered early on in Herodotus's narrative by the founder of the Persian Empire, Cyrus. But you might think, oh, well, pathetic, you know, he's gone, Herodotus won't have any time for him. But he puts in his mouth this saying that in peace sons bury their fathers that is the normal natural order of events but in war fathers bury their sons and that is not a good thing so it's one of these kind of maxims and parables that give one pause make one think uh, and i rather like that uh, in herodotus that's a pretty famous saying now, isn't it? Is that, is that the originator, is Herodotus? It's the originator, exactly. These things carry on through. He also made, just if I could add one more thing about civil war, he said that uh, civil war, which is war within a people, is as much worse than war against a foreign enemy as war is worse than peace. So peace is great, war is not great. Civil war, if you're going to do war, which I hope you won't, at least don't do civil war, because that's even worse than war itself. That was Professor Paul Cartledge. Paul's most recent book is Democracy, A Life, which was published in both the UK and US in 2016 by Oxford University Press and which was discussed on a previous episode of this podcast. Now, here's a reminder that the April issue of BBC History magazine is currently on sale. In this month's edition, we have articles on the restoration of Charles II, a Tudor dictator, 19th century inventions, America's entry into the First World War, and women in popular history. You can get hold of the magazine in all good news agents in the UK, and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash history US. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. 
That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, earlier this year, some of our team headed over to India to launch our new magazine, BBC World Histories, at the Zay Jaipur Literature Festival. The festival played host to talks from some of the world's leading historians, and we had a chance to grab some time with a number of them around their lectures. So here, speaking to our website assistant Ellie Cawthorn and our reviews editor Matt Elton, is Dr John Wilson of King's College London, whose most recent book explores the story of India's incorporation into the British Empire. I'm John Wilson. Uh, I'm here to talk about my book, India Conquered, Britain's Raj and the Chaos of Empire, which was published in August. Um, I'm a historian of India, mainly of the British period in India. And the book covers the growth and existence and fall of the British Empire in in South Asia. So your book, India Conquered, suggests that the British actually introduced a whole load of chaos and disorder to India. How have you come to that conclusion? Uh, It's a a sort of bottom-up take on the British Empire in India. So, So really using... Uh, quite local sources rather than you know reading the the text written by governors and governors governors generals and so, so forth who are you know always trying to put a positive spin on things but if you dig down into into the archives of uh, local government um, provincial level government you know looking at the interaction between the British and Indians then you you develop quite a different story from the, the sort of official narrative I suppose so and it is about I suppose chaos and anxiety and um, uh, a state that is relatively weak but violent if that makes sense which is seen actually by Indians often as a kind of source of disorder and sort of seen as quite capricious much of the time but I think the the overarching sort of mood for the British was this kind of sense of anxiety and fear and they're constantly trying to kind of protect their power and protect their sovereignty um, and you know always see themselves as embattled so that's the kind of the thrust so it's bottom up perspective. And you also write um, about the role of propaganda in the empire can you tell us a bit about that? I think a lot of the texts that we take we tend to take seriously as you know, descriptions of empire are, I suppose, a propaganda. I don't really, I don't use that word, but, you know, positive spins, coherent stories, in particular about British power. Um, and I think, so, a lot of the time, the, the British in India are kind of uh, scrabbling around trying to make sense of things in India, a society they don't understand, a society that they don't have effective institutions to find out about and to connect with Indians. But they, they have to always project a good story and a good face to Britain because they're ultimately, they're not accountable to the Indian population what Indians think as long as it doesn't undermine their rule doesn't matter but what does matter is what their employers in London you know kind of think um, you know Parliament the East India Company if it's the East India Company 
um, so, so that's kind of where propaganda comes in. It's, it's, a, it's uh, the British telling stories about what they're doing to the relevant sections of the British public who are going to have some kind of influence over their lives. So really there wasn't any effort made um, in terms of propaganda to sell the empire to Indians? No, a lot of, I mean, a lot of historians think there was. I don't think there was much. I think there's some, you know, there are... But, um, but this is a government that is not... It never thinks it's going to get the consent of the people who it rules. It's not interested in consent um, most of the time. And, and they, the British very consciously say that. They say we're, most of the time they say we're a conquering power. We rule by the sword. We rule by the gun. Uh, you know, our power is based on force. Um, you know, sometimes they say, oh, it's for, for the good of the Indians that we rule them like this. Often they don't. But there's, so there's no, there's no real attempt to, to, to persuade Indians of the kind of virtue of their rule and, and to sell it in, in really any positive way. I mean, sort of, and, and that's, I think, something that underpins that sense of anxiety. The British actually themselves believe British rule is based on violence. And they, so they know that, you know, violence can always overthrow it. It has no deep foundations. They, they're quite clear about that. So the British Empire is obviously a quite a difficult period of British history to grapple with in terms of its legacy. Yeah. As a historian, how do you think we should best sensitively tackle that fact? I suppose I'm, perhaps this is a very a silly answer, but in a sense it shouldn't cause any trouble because there's more to the history of Britain than empire. And that's, so that's why I sort of challenge those historians of empire who think that every single, you know, person, every move in British politics is somehow or other, you know, all about empire. It's not. You know, there are lots of things that happen in Britain that, that are not about empire. Empire is only done by certain people. It benefits probably at certain moments large sections of the British population, but much of the time it doesn't benefit that many Britons. So it's kind of a, you know, it's something that we Britons, Britain and Britain and the British state did. It's in our past. It doesn't inform everything about the British past and it doesn't necessarily inform the present. So I think there's a kind of, we need a reckoning. Britain is perhaps almost uniquely not reckoned with empire as part of its past, you know, compared to other states that have histories that are violent. I mean, you know, every state has a history that's violent in a certain sense, you know, kind of every, every, every country has some kind of skeletons in the closet. But so we need some kind of reckoning, but I don't think it should, it's not, it shouldn't be a crisis. It shouldn't undermine kind of a sense of the good things about, about British politics or whatever. Um, because um, in many ways, in recent years, there's been moves for nations to apologise for things in history. Yeah. Um, so, for example, the Holocaust yeah. is, is a good example of that. Um, do you think that that's appropriate for this, or do you think the time has passed? How do you view that? I think an, ap- an apology is appropriate. I mean, an apology from a representative of the state, not from in- an individual, an apology from a, a representative of the, of the state uh, for what the st- that same state did in the past. This is the same state that we're talking about. It has different people who have different ideas, different concepts. That, so someone you can... A politician and a prime minister can very easily stand up, or the queen even, could very easily stand up and say, you know, I'm apologising on the behalf of the state for something that, you know, I disagree with now, etc. I don't see any problem with that. So, you know, I think, I think it should happen. There are lots of things about, say, the 19th century or the 18th century that are so, you know, totally alien to the political world we live in now. We, we live in a, a different kind of society in so many ways. So, so uh, you know, I understand why people say, oh, we, we should move on. I think it's a good thing. I, don't, I think it would, be a, it would be a good and truthful thing to do. But it's not, you know, I don't think it should be the priority for, for anyone. I think the most, you know, if you're, if you're in politics, you should be interested in making the society that you rule or whatever a better place. And I'm not sure, say, Indian politicians demanding an apology from Britain, what, what part does it do in that respect? We're obviously here in Jaipur, in India. Um, how is the imperial legacy viewed here? One has sort of celebrated recent texts that are very critical of it. Um, so there is an interest in 
a very negative story about the British Empire. Um, that's predo- you know the predominant view. I mean, I think others others perhaps would take. You know, it's contested to some degree. Uh, so there are people who would defend Britain and Britain's empire. What my book tries to do, I suppose, is to often to say that the, the, the British Empire that we we criticise or defend is, is not what we think it is. It's, it's, it isn't this kind of massive, huge, effective system of government. It's much more chaotic, and, and that's that's had fairly positive uh, responses. But criticising empire is part of the national story in India, I think, um, and that's important. And I think there's a whenever there is a moment of some kind of you know where people are interested in telling some kind of national story, then you get this kind of criti- you know, critique of empire. Um, so, so it's always about something else, if you like. So it's always about some other kind of project, some other... Um, so I think that's why at the, mo- the moment where kind of politics is quite fraught, you know, the nation is very important. What the Indian nation is, is it a Hindu nation, for example, with the BJP in government? You know, that's when actually people start to you know, get back interested in the British because it's like, you know, hold on, well, the nation came together or whatever, in you know, opposition to British rules. We obviously hear a lot about the British impact on India, for good reason. But what we don't hear quite so much about is the impact of having India as a colony on Britain. Can you tell us about, about that? Uh, yes, I think um, Britain, having India as a colony, probably made Britain a bit richer, but not that, rich, that much richer. Um, I don't think it's... There are those who argue that, you know, it's uh, empire that sort of led to the Industrial Revolution. I think it, it did, to some degree, but in a very complicated way. Um, so it's because, actually, British uh, manufacturers had to compete with goods from India. Um, that's, that's why industrialization occurs. So, so there, are, there are those kind of things. But it doesn't, you know, the, the kind of resources from India don't pile up somewhere in Britain. Um, I think that you end up with a government that is... The kind of government that's designed almost, or built um, to govern empire then to some degree comes back to Britain. So you have a civil service that's quite you know, regimented, rule-bound, bureaucratic. Those are things that I think develop actually as much out of governing an empire as they do governing Britain. Um, I think Britain has a kind of peculiarly centralised political constitution, um, you know, at least for much of the 20th century. And I think that's partly a consequence of empire because there is this attempt to create this sort of almost imperial sovereignty and then that comes back to Britain. And of course, you have a certain kind of ruling class, you know, who um, come back from empire in 1947, you know, from the Indian Empire, and then other places later, you know, and need to be found jobs, and, and that, that those kind of values about how you govern maybe uh, informs Britain and British politics. I mean, like lots of British officials in India came back in 1947 and like became local councillors. How does that play out? We don't know actually, but you know, so there is some kind of role there. What about um, influence on mass culture? Can we trace any? No. I think that um, I don't think that Empire in India has much of a, a, a sort of cultural uh, life. I think you know some historians would disagree with me. Um, certainly, you get representations of empire and so forth within certain kind of popular cu- cultural genres, music halls or whatever. But they're alongside all sorts of other stuff, you know, that is there, and they're not they're not the, the dominant kind of force, you know. Um, you know, probably the most important sort of cultural representation of. Popu- you know, popularly consumed cultural representation of empire in India is Hollywood in the 1920s and 1930s. And Hollywood is not part of a country that's, um, you know, ruling an empire. So there's a way in which often it become, empire becomes, you know, part of uh, a sort of narrative, broader narratives about adventure and so forth. And that, that's important. But beyond that, I'm not sure. Uh, I think what's actually peculiar, I think, about the British Empire in India is how little impact it has on the cultural life of the British public, I think. I think you get then in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, you get the kind of Raj revival stuff, um, Paul Scott, you know, uh, the Far Pavilions, all that. And, and that's sort of, that's a new different thing. That's about Britain grappling with itself in a post-imperial age in a complicated way. But I think actually for most of the period of 
British rule in India, there isn't much of a sort of British cultural life. And where can we still see the legacy of empire today, both in India and in Britain? Um, if you arrive at an Indian airport and you go through the, the scanners that where your, your bag is kind of x-rayed, you'll find somebody writing in a ledger, writing in sort of a, a, a paper book, um, you know, sort of the details of all the people who've passed through this. And that's a legacy of empire. So you have this incredibly bureaucratic set of practices that are all about record-keeping, um, you know, kind of writing things down. Um, the idea that somehow or other kind of, you know, that record keeping is some kind of government. Of course, this book is never referred to. Nothing happens to this, you know, kind of. But that's a, that's a, it's the sort of empire, the way in which the British Empire in India created almost this kind of fiction of power by creating this kind of sort of bureaucratic, you know, very sort of written, legible kind of political structure. So there's lots of areas of Indian life and Indian, in particular in the Indian state, that are very imperial. So the court system, you know, you go to a, a district court in India and you, there will be a list of judges on the wall and it will be a list going back probably to the middle of the 19th century and it will have no line separating those before and after 1947. The court does you know, barely exist, acknowledges independence. Of course, the law that it governs has been reformed many times, blah, 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 etc. Similarly, you know, kind of revenue systems, record keeping, the, 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 the kind of the most sort of centralised structure of the state, I think, is, you know, is, is to some great degree, civil service in India is a huge, is, is a legacy of empire. Um, but I think then beyond that, there's lots of places where actually, you know, empire doesn't have that kind of legacy. Um, you know, this is a controversial view, perhaps, but, you know, the English language people talk about as a legacy of empire. Well, I'm not sure. You know, sure, you know, people learnt English to get jobs working for the, with the British, but, you know, English was never en- encouraged en masse by empire. Um, so... It's not necessarily a legacy of empire in the same way that record-keeping or the court systems are. Do you think there are any particular aspects of the empire that British and Indian people have very different views of that you think need realigning or that British people are perhaps wrong to have those views of? There's areas that um, the British public or whatever, you know, more generally have a positive view about that, that it's wrong for them to do so. I mean, like, yeah, the railways, infrastructure, you know, um, there's this sort of idea of the British regime as somehow they're being, you know... The, the steel frame, this effective bureaucracy, this, uh, all, the, all this kind of stuff. And, and I think there's a lot of myths there, you know, that, that uh, need to be kind of sort of unravelled. Um, the, the assumption that some... I suppose there's an idea that... common idea is maybe... common idea in Britain that the British Empire in India was, um, you know, author, authoritarian, uh, absolutist. We don't like all that stuff, you know, we're, we're democratic now. But, you know, at least it led to order and kind of efficiency and so on. And I think that, that needs to be radically revised. I think there's no, you know, the, the British didn't introduce order. They, they created power in small pockets and allowed, you know, chaos to exist elsewhere. So, so that's something that's, 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 that's important. Whether that's though a British people thinking differently from Indians, I'm not sure. I think it'd be really interesting to get people to, you know, to get sort of a, a, a really serious conversation going. What, what strikes me actually is that Britain's thinking about empire and Indians thinking about empire do so in, you know, very separately. And they have different kind of, different concepts, different sets of ideas, in things that are inaccurate in different ways. It's, it's quite complicated. It's not a simple sense of one group think, thinking this and another group thinking that. And, and it would be very interesting to try and get people talking together. Could you, like, here's a question, and I've, I've asked this question to a number of people um, thinking about it. Could you create a common textbook? Is it, is it possible to write a textbook that works for both Indian and British schoolchildren about the British Empire? You know, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Do you think that British and Indian historians work together on the empire enough yes they do they, they do um, but so, so there is no uh, you know British and Indian historians you know part of the same historical community we're community friends we, we're, we engage there's no, there's no separation at all but we 
work genuinely on such small areas, I suppose. Um, and, you know, our history is divided up into small chunks um, that actually kind of, you don't get that bigger, you don't get the kind of bigger picture that you get from a textbook or something like that. So, um, so I, don't, I don't think there is a, I mean, there are, there are points of tension and so forth, you know, et cetera, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure, it's, it's, I'm not sure you could say one thing as an Indian view and one thing as a British view amongst the historical profession, um, you know, at all. Um, you know, we, we, it, there's constant communication, but, you know, it's, it, it is, we're, we're too over-specialised, you know, we, we, we look at too small things and, and um, so, that, so that kind of bigger sort of collaborative picture of, of the British and India or whatever is not there at all. Um, so is that one of the challenges of international history, that people are too over-specialised? I think to try and do something that's multi... So, you know, like multinational in, in its archives, for example, is very difficult. People do do it. Um, you know, to, it, it is... Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is tough, you know. Um, I think... Um, I guess you've got to... I suppose you've got to think about, you know, a number of different groups of historians trying to actually come up with a common set of questions because it's almost as if they, they would be interested in different kinds of questions, you know. Uh, you know, if there is a difference... I mean, it's not, not now, but, you know, 20 years ago, you, one had a sense that a lot of British historians were asking the question, how did the British rule India? No, how did the British survive as state in India and Indian historians are interested in the question what is the effect of British rule so they're, they're different questions What other challenges do you think world history and the study of it faces in 2017? Okay so there's a number of challenges of world history one of which is really a question of scale um, and how do you say something meaningful that's relevant to particular places but that's actually about interconnection and about sort of things that exist on a, on a kind of global scale and I think that's really really hard so I think there, and there are, there are lots of different ways of doing world history I suppose and, and one which I don't like is to just, just to always look at these big aggregate processes and structures and it's always about the global economy or whatever and the big numbers about kind of you know goods flowing across the world and, or, or whatever it is or international institutions that has a certain validity, but it doesn't tell you about what's happening on it, you know, going on in, real, in, in, in places. And I think that everything happens somewhere. You know, even the world, world historians need to always remember that everything happens in a place. The value of world history is, to, is it allows you to see that the things happening in that place actually are, are influenced by forces that come from all sorts of different you know, places and, and processes that are global, etc. But to, to keep things rooted in that sort of sense of place, I think, is key. I think the second thing is... I suppose there's sort of a, a kind of prickly nationalism that exists and maybe is on the rise with Trump, Modi, Brexit, uh, the nationalist turn in China, you know, these kind of, these kind of things. The, why that's happened is interesting. But the effect of all these processes, more uh, intense concern about the, the nation and more defensive approaches to the nation. And I'm not, not opposed to some, you know, some kinds of nationalism. Um, one can't just dissolve the nation overnight. But, but this sort of protect, you know, prickly uh, defensive... Uh, kind of nationalism I think creates different difficulties for historians and you know it's all about trying to deny the kind of interconnected things often you know and argue that there is some kind of uniqueness to that you know uh, India is this kind of essentially Hindu nation that sort of has its this culture that is just sui generis and, and so forth well no that's actually India's always what is Indian is influenced by forces from across the, from, from all sorts of different places you know it doesn't mean it's not Indian it's just that you know there's kind of a flows and and movement of ideas and cultures and so forth but but kind of that, that sort of nationalist moment sort of leads to a, a, an attempt to try and divide histories up which I think is kind of quite challenging to, to world history you know and world history is try, it tries to challenge I think. What developments would you like to see in world history over the next 10 years or so? I'd like to see a turn back towards economic history but that is uh, about 
the particular, you know, a sort of a, an embedded, um, locally rooted economic history that is not just like about big aggregate numbers, but is actually about you know processes of production, consumption, distribution happening in particular places, and and that's I think that's starting to happen, and that's quite exciting. So, I think we've been through a, pro, a period of well, 20 years or 30 years where it's all been about culture and, you know, representations and whatever. Uh, and people imagine they can just uh, write histories that are valid just by reading a small number of books, a small number of texts, and you can't. So just a, a return to a kind of, I suppose, not just economic history, but material history, a history of, of, of things and, you know, the, the material worlds people create for each other, labour, work. You know, let's think really hard about work. I mean, it's the most important thing, you know, it's crucial, you know, um, uh, but to, to have a sort of a global history of work that is about what's going on in real places um, would be fantastic. That was John Wilson. His book, India Conquered, Britain's Raj and the Chaos of Empire, was published last year in the UK and the US by Simon & Schuster. And you can read a piece by John about the East India Company in the February edition of BBC History magazine which is available as a back issue. Meanwhile, you can find out more about our new title, BBC World Histories, at historyextra.com. And now it's time for this week's history news with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. An ancient village which is estimated to be 14,000 years old has been discovered during an excavation in British Columbia, Canada. The site, on a rocky spit of the remote Tricut Island, which is located about 500 kilometres northwest of Victoria, may be one of the oldest human settlements ever found in North America. Items unearthed at the site reportedly include tools for lighting fires, fish hooks and spears dating back to the Ice Age. Alicia Gavro, anthropology PhD student at the University of Victoria and part of the Diggs team, told Vancouver Island News, quote, What this is doing is just changing our idea of the way in which North America was first peopled. She explained that while archaeologists have long thought that the area would have been completely uninhabitable, evidence from the site indicates that the people who settled there were, quote, rather adept sea mammal hunters. In other news, archaeological finds from the Roman town of Verulamium, uncovered during Gasmain's work at St Albans, have been described as significant by the District Council's museum service. The new holes have revealed the location of the corner of the town wall and a previously unknown house, where the remains of an opus signinum floor, made up of tiles broken up into very small pieces, were also uncovered. Simon West, district archaeologist for St Albans City, told the BBC, quote, We found the very corner of the town wall as it bends round, adding, It's like having a jigsaw, and now there are two more pieces. The third largest city in Roman Britain, Virulamium, was to the southwest of what is now St Albans in Hertfordshire. The findings will go to the Virulamium Museum in the city. OK, well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking to the author, Philippa Gregory, about the secrets of successful historical fiction. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, 
which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.